evening. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9, beginning at verse 35. Matthew 9, verse 35. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is the word of the living God, we say, Thanks be to God. Please be seated. <coughs> Let's pray together. <coughs> Our Father in heaven, you've given us much. And I pray for eyes to see just how much you've given to us. And I pray that we'll see the bounty of our inheritance. Help us to see the richness of the, of the calling you've given us, of the privileges you've given us. And I pray that as you've given us so much that we won't hoard these things to ourselves, but that we will eagerly proclaim them, to proclaim your gospel. Give us energy to do so. Give us the desire to do so. Give us compassion. That we may be energized to see to it that your sheep are gathered in from every corner of the globe. And give us what we need that we may accomplish this task through Christ our Lord. And may this evening aid us in this process. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen. Amen. A few weeks ago, I spoke, I preached on the Lord's model prayer from Matthew 5. And for those of you who were with us a few weeks ago, you may see a similarity between our passage tonight and that passage in Matthew 5. Matthew 6. I'm sorry, yes, I was the one to preach it. The Lord's model prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And in that sermon I spoke that there is one major aim in this prayer, one major intention from our Lord. First petition, hallowed be your name. And then from that stem every other petition. So our great aim as Christians is to see that God is glorified, his name hallowed, his name set apart. So consider with me, by way of review, 
some of these petitions. Your kingdom come. That really is essentially hallowing God's name by, by extending God's kingdom to every corner of the globe. God, of course, is the one who builds it. We preach it. Your will be done. This is God's moral will being known on the earth. Again, it's about proclaiming God's gospel to the ends of the earth. And then it gets personal. Give us our daily bread. Why are we asking for daily bread? Well, if our intention is that God's name be hallowed in every corner of the globe, we need bread to do so. So why does he give us daily bread? That we may hallow his name. And then the next petition, forgive us. We need to be clean in order to do God's work. Lead us not into temptation. We need to be free from the evil one in order to do God's work. And then it closes for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So from beginning to end, it's about God's glory, about God's kingdom coming. So how is this related to our passage tonight. Well, consider there aren't many times in which Jesus instructs us how to pray. There's plenty of mention of prayer in the book of Matthew, but how often is Jesus actually telling us what to pray for? Well, Jesus prays, if you look, for more laborers to go into the harvest field. Is this not directly in line with the Lord's prayer? Jesus is just doubling down. And that's really my intention tonight, to just press this point a little bit further. What are we praying for? What are we striving for? What are we working for as a church? It's for God's glory here in Hampton, in our own hearts, and among the nations. So let's look at this text and see our Lord doubling down. There are some nuances, of course, in this passage. We're going to see the burden that our Lord carries and that we should carry with us. First, we see verse 35. Jesus went about all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease. So this is a summary statement. If you read the book of Matthew and you go through the first several chapters, you're going to see that up through this point, this is what's been going on in various Times in various cities and various ways, Jesus has been preaching and healing and teaching. And he has shown himself to be unlike any other prophet or teacher of the past. The disciples are astounded at what he's doing. He's able to heal all sorts of sicknesses on the spot, with authority, with a command. He even has authority over the natural world. Verse 35 is just a summary statement. And now verse 36, this next verse. At first, it seems like a particular incident. Look at the language there. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them. It was when he saw the multitudes. He took notice of them. And it may indeed be referring to a particular incident. But if so, we at least know that this is not the only time Jesus had compassion even in the book of Matthew, there are several other instances of this. So what exactly is going on? We could just infer, if you will. We can, we can 
we can gather the clues, and we know Jesus is compassionate. So what is Matthew doing here? He says just directly, he is compassionate. So what's going on? I think, if you will, that Matthew's just making it really obvious, and he's helping us by giving us a little peek behind the curtain. We know what Jesus, at this point, is teaching. We know what he's doing. He's healing. He's preaching. But what is he feeling? What is Jesus thinking? Well, this is the little peek behind the curtain. He's moved with compassion as he looks upon the crowds. This is similar to Matthew 15. Jesus called his disciples to himself and he says plainly to them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And then again, Matthew 20, the multitude warned them, again, multitude, that they should be quiet. But these blind men cried out all the more, have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. So Jesus stood still and called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, that our eyes might be opened. And so Jesus had compassion. So we get a sense of what is he feeling? What is he thinking? And Jesus touches their eyes and immediately they receive their sight. So compassion is like pity. It's like sympathy. It's a desire to meet the needs of others. Literally speaking, it's made up of two parts, not to get too technical, but just for brief, brief time. C-O-M and then passion. C-O-M, together or with. And then passion is to suffer. So literally, compassion is to suffer with someone. To suffer together. Now who can do this? God does not change. But Jesus, being God and man, you think about this, he could truly imagine, those blind men, because Jesus was man, he could truly imagine what it would be like to not have eyes. Because Jesus had eyes. He could truly suffer with or alongside the people. He knew what it was like. So our confession says that God does not change. He's not affected by outside forces. But here, notice the text says, Jesus was moved. He looked, and when he saw the needs of the people, he was moved with compassion. The God-man is moved, and this is a remarkable remarkable thing. Though God does not change, Jesus, according to his humanity, is moved as he looks upon the people. And this is the beauty of the incarnation. We get a sense of what God is really feeling and thinking. Jesus suffers together with the people. Hebrews elaborates upon this this from Hebrews 4 and then a verse from Hebrews 5. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. You think about that. Can God sympathize with our weaknesses? Well, Jesus can. 
Jesus was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. So who can suffer with humanity? The God-man can. This is the beauty of the incarnation. It's truly extraordinary. Him who is divine takes on our flesh and becomes man. And that's only the start of the gospel. Of course, the most compassionate thing of all is not merely opening the eyes of the man, but going to the cross. Jesus not simply suffers alongside the people as he's going along the crowds. He literally gets on a cross and suffers the wrath of a holy God on their behalf. That is compassion. And here in our passage tonight, we get just a glimpse. We're not yet, we're not yet at the cross, but here, here's a glimpse. The next phrase in our text. He had compassion, and then we get the why. We already know a little bit why, and I've been explaining that, but here, Matthew's going to make it even more obvious. Why does he have compassion? Because the people are weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. Jesus sees they have no shepherd, and he has compassion. This is promised in the Old Testament, in the book of Zechariah, we can read about a coming shepherd. There were false shepherds, even in the Old Testament days. In Jesus' day, the Pharisees were the false leaders who were leading people astray. <coughs> they were twisting God's laws, and the people were helpless and scattered. And then notice what's next in the discourse. Jesus tells them to pray Pray for God to send more workers into the harvest field. Workers, in this case, are those who are going to reap God's harvest. This would include preaching, teaching, helping the hurting. <coughs> Jesus sees the multitudes, and it's then that he makes this remark. And this, too, is interesting. It's as if Jesus sees how much ministry there is to do. If any guy could be a one-man show, it would be Jesus. But he looks up after he's doing all of this healing and all of this preaching and teaching. He looks up, he sees there is a multitude, and he looks at his disciples and say, we need more guys. I'd say, of course, being a little bit cheeky, Jesus had been doing a pretty good job at this point. He's healing all sorts of people, and the crowds are pressing in on him. And he says we need more workers. And of course, God doesn't need us. It's not the point. Think of, though, the implication of this. It's not as if Jesus is deficient. It's not as if he needs us. But God, in his mysterious and sovereign plan, has made it so that people, mere people, are able to carry on the works of Christ. And this is what takes place in the very next chapter. Look down there with me. In chapter 10, verse 1, we see that Jesus calls the disciples to himself. 
and he gives them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of diseases. A few verses later, Jesus commands the disciples, as you go, this is verse 6, 7, and 8, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. So what works are the disciples going to do? Let's look back in chapter 4. We're going to see a parallel here. They are carrying on the works of Jesus. Look with me. Chapter 4, beginning in verse 17. Notice the similarities. The disciples are going to go out. They're going to do certain activities. Look in chapter 4. What do we see? The very beginning of his ministry, right after he, he goes into the wilderness and is tempted by Satan, he goes out. His ministry begins. Verse 17, Jesus' message is this. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And that's exactly what he tells the apostles to preach. That's the same message. And then look down, verse 23. Jesus went about all Galilee, noticed his activities, teaching in all their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. And then look back at chapter 10. It's the very same activities. The disciples are carrying on the ministry of Jesus. And here we are, Grace Baptist Chapel. And I think that we can say that we are an answer to the prayer of these apostles. Before they went, they prayed for more workers. And surely the apostles obeyed this command of our Lord, and they prayed for more workers to go into the harvest. And surely the church down through the ages has prayed for more workers to go into the harvest. And so this church is the answer to all those prayers. Here we are in Hampton, Virginia, carrying on the works of the apostles. We are the fruits of those prayers. God has answered. And we too surely must pray for more workers to go out. It's a command. It's the lone command in this passage. So pray. Jesus sees the multitude. He's, he knows he's going to ascend to the Father. And he tells us plainly, pray for more workers. The disciples at this point, they didn't know all that Jesus was going to do. They did not yet know all that God had planned. There could be more said on these verses, but let's consider now several ways that we can put this passage to use, how we can benefit from this. That was a quick sort of exposition, but now I have five or so uses. The first is this. Recognize that the harvest is plentiful. Recognize that the harvest is plentiful. This may seem obvious. I'm not not so sure it always is. But this needs to be on the forefront of our mind. And it is interesting that when Jesus sees the multitude, that's when he has compassion. Many, many people are 
helpless. They are full of sin. The translation in some some versions say harassed and helpless. The people are distressed. They're they're torn apart. They're being led by, by all sorts of ideologies that are false. Think of the rise of of witchcraft and paganism in our own society. Think of the, the, the nonsensical things that you see going on in the schools right now. These people are lost. They are without a shepherd. The USA has the highest number of single parent households in the world. And it is not just that these single parent households have no spiritual father in the home. They have no earthly father or shepherd or guide in the home. The harvest, in other words, is plentiful. People, I talk to them, my students, they are without guidance. In some cases, they are clueless as to how the world works. This is not to mention just how vast the need for foreign missionaries is recent statistics according to the Joshua Project. Joshua Project recently said there are 7.9 billion people in the world. 7.9 billion. And out of those, 3.3 billion are considered unreached. Unreached is is just basically like they don't have access to the gospel. So it's not just that 3.3 billion are not Christian. It's that 3.3 billion do not have access to the gospel. If you want to think in terms of people groups, Joshua Project will say there are about 17,000 people groups. And out of those, 7,400 are unreached. So 7,400 have no access to the gospel. The harvest is plentiful. Pray to the Lord of the harvest for more laborers. And we have to note that so much, so many ministry opportunities require not just one man to lead 200 people, but so much ministry requires one-to-one sort of effort. I think especially of ministry to Muslims. Ministry to Muslims. Muslims, there's some statistics out there, I don't have them in front of me, but there's some statistics out there that suggest that Muslims are hearing the gospel dozens of times before they believe it. Dozens of times. They hear it, and then they need to hear it wow, 25 more times before it clicks. Their worldview is so utterly different that they just they don't grasp it right away. So what do the Muslims need? I'm not talking in all cases, but what do most Muslims need? They need one-on-one friendships. And this is the sort of this is the sort of evangelism that's taking place overseas as you have missionaries going into homes, spending hours with one guy. That's what it takes. Other efforts in some parts of the world are just not fruitful. In Muslim countries, you need one-on-one work. I recently gave the gospel to some Muslim guys. We're playing soccer with some Muslim guys and had them over, gave them the gospel. And it was so utterly foreign that the concept of free grace just, it doesn't compute. 
So what needs to happen? Well, in their case, I need to give it to them again. And then probably again and again and again. And you know what? They need more workers. They need other guys to come alongside and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the truth about Christianity. In India, I heard of a, uh, a recent a recent missions conference. This is a little while back, actually. In India, you have many, many Hindus and you have many Muslims. And it was a missionary conference and they were giving a report and certain Hindu provinces, you would have a report and it would be hundreds of new churches were started in this Hindu province. And people would clap. It's just amazing what's going on in the Hindu world. Hundreds and hundreds of new churches are starting all the time. And then the same conference, they gave a report about how things are going in the Muslim populated area. And instead of hundreds of new churches, they have 10 new churches. But the applause was just the same. They're clapping just as hard. Why? Because ministry among Muslims is that difficult. It's that slow going. The Muslims simply need one-on-one -on -one interaction. So what do we say? It's not complicated. You're giving them the gospel. But what do they need? They need more workers. The harvest indeed is plentiful. So that's the first use. Second use is this. Be prepared to make disciples. Be prepared to make disciples. There is an other-centeredness to this passage. Christ could continually meet the needs of his sheep. And he could, if you will, he could coddle them. He could coddle us all into a barn and he could comfort us until we die and go be with him. But that's not what he does. He sends the sheep out and he says, Matthew 10, I send you out as sheep amongst wolves. And they haven't even known Jesus that long. At this point in Matthew, Jesus hasn't even died yet, and he's already sending them out. There's a lot they have to learn. And yet Jesus is saying, go. I'm going to give you power. Go. That's not to say that we shouldn't train, that we shouldn't go to seminary, that we shouldn't prepare. But it is to say that all of us need to be prepared to make disciples. And it is to encourage every one of you. <laughs> Do you know the gospel? You can make disciples. You can proclaim the gospel. You may not be able to teach them a systematic theology. But think of the woman at the well. The woman at the well, after one meeting with Jesus, what does she do? She recognizes this prophet is unlike any other prophet. And she goes back and she tells the whole town, come see this guy. So what do you know about Jesus? Well, whatever it is you know about Jesus, if it's in line with the scriptures, you can tell it to others. That's what the woman at the well did. So be encouraged. Be prepared to make disciples. Jesus sends them out quickly, doesn't he? Third use. Prayer is the precursor to the church's work in the world. Prayer is the precursor. It's a bit wordy. Prayer is the precursor to the church's work in the world. Before we make disciples, before we go out into the midst of the wolves, we are to pray.
pray. There are a number of examples in Matthew. And if you look in the book of Acts, prayer, 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 and then the church is going forward, forward, forward. That is just the way it works. Prayer is that engine. Of course it's God. Have a MacArthur MacArthur quote here I'll share with you that I think is is helpful. Believers' prayers participate in the fulfillment of God's plans. Believers' prayers participate in the fulfillment of God's plans. I think that's the right way to think about it. Are we driving forth the kingdom, are we, are, we, are we building it ourselves? No, but our prayers participate. We are, we are used by God. Our prayers are genuinely used by God. And there's some mystery there. But we can at least say, Jesus tells us to pray, therefore we should pray. There's more to be said on that. I'm going to keep going. Next point. Fourthly, cultivate the compassion for people, cultivate a compassion for people. I don't take it that it's a given that we're all just compassionate naturally. Compassion can wax and wane. I thought there for a while that I was a pretty compassionate person. I lived overseas, I was evangelizing. I felt sorry for the poor. And then Pastor Ryan went through the book of Jonah and I was convicted. I had heard a number of sermon series on Jonah, um, or, or sermons at least on Jonah, and I always thought Jonah was kind of a jerk. I didn't get it. I really didn't. Jonah, he didn't want to go preach, and I'm like, oh, come on, man! Like everybody wants to go preach. Uh, but for the first time in my life, maybe it was a particular season I was in. Maybe it was because it was 2020. And that was when, like, the world was at everybody's throat, right? But for the first time in my life, I, I kind of got it. I understood Jonah's temptation. I don't know why the Holy Spirit chose to work in me then, um, but he did. And I, I, I don't know what else there is. To, to say about it, but I think that I had gotten older and that I had been burned by the world. I had been, I had seen the nature of man. I'd seen the evil. I had seen how tired you get when you get older. And, and I got it. Jonah, I get it. He didn't want to go preach to those people. He didn't want to extend God's mercy. And perhaps you can relate to that. Perhaps you can't. But there may be a season in your life, whether soon or whether later, where you are tempted in that way. And if you are tempted in that way, you need to go back to these gospel passages and meditate upon Jesus. He's in the midst of the people. And he has compassion on. Do they deserve the grace of God? No. But he has compassion on them. 
I think another point here in how we cultivate compassion is we need to be in the midst of them. I'm all for screens. I'm all for technology. Um, we need to be in the midst of people. You got to get out there. Jesus was among the people. And I've repeated this tonight, and I'll say it one more time. It was when he saw the multitude that he felt compassion. And has that ever happened to you? Like, I've, I've had some experiences recently where you just hang around someone, they're rough around the edges, and then you get to know them, and there's a bit of a backstory, and then you're then your compassion sort of comes out. So we need to be among the people. Jesus was among the people. If we do so, it will give us the heart for the people. Lastly, I'll end with a quote from William Carey. William Carey was missionary to India, and at the time he went to India, people thought that he was just a wild man. Like, you're going to go out there, like, what are you doing, man? And he spoke of going, and you'll notice in this quote that the first and most important thing that we can do for the missionary endeavor is to pray. So here's the quote. One of the first and most important of those duties which are incumbent upon us is fervent and united prayer. And he goes on. If a temple is raised for God in the heathen world, it will not be by might, nor by power, nor by the authority of the magistrate or the eloquence of the orator, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. So we must pray for more laborers to go into the harvest. And with that, let's pray. <coughs> Our Father, we do pray that you will send out more workers into the harvest field. There are so many needs out there and we know that you don't need us. We know that Jesus is not deficient. I don't want to suggest that in any way whatsoever. But Lord, in some mysterious way, you use people to proclaim the gospel. And I pray that you'll do so. I pray that you'll raise up more among this body, even missionaries, if that's your will. I pray that you will raise up more laborers here in Hampton. There are so many churches here with so many teaching false things. I pray they'll stop and they'll turn and they'll preach the true gospel. And we pray all of this, Lord, that your name may be hallowed in every corner of the earth. In Jesus' name.